Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 59. Psalm chapter 59. Last week, Steve preached on Psalm 56, and Psalm 59 uh, finishes the series from Psalm 52, 53, um, of, of a series of psalms of crying out to God, crying out to God for deliverance. Um, then as we move through the psalms, we get to some more joyous-sounding psalms. Um, but th- this is the last one that, that we get in this series. So let's uh, all read from Psalm 59. Not collectively. I mean, I'm going to read it, but you read in your Bible. Don't say anything. That's not what I was trying to say. Don't, don't read with me. Follow along with me. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay? Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You... Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride for the curses and lies they utter. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl, if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress my God on whom I can rely. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, we we come before you this morning, all of us from different events through the past week, different emotions, different circumstances. We all come with different things weighing on our hearts. Some of us come here this morning And we can directly echo the words of David, deliver me. Lord, we come now to you and to your word. We pray that you would open it to our hearts and to our minds. Send your spirit in a way where he speaks to us through your word. Where we hear what it is we need to hear. And that we would come to trust you more. We just sang about how beautiful it is and how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. Help us to do that. We pray now for your blessing on our time together, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I suspect that for most of us, if not all of us, that we can at one point or time in our lives all say these words in chapter 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers. And save me from those who are after my blood. It's a little bit gory. Maybe that's not the right word. It's graphic, right? Save me from those people who are, in in this case, trying to kill me. And how many times in our lives, maybe we're not in the exact same circumstance, how many times have we gone to God saying this exact same thing? God, deliver me. God, help me. God, I, I am in need of something. I'm in a fickle pickle and I don't know how to get out. Lord, I I need your help. 
David's circumstances drive this on forward, and, and it's unique to David, but we all have enemies. And sometimes enemies are specific people, whether they're in the workplace, whether they're our neighbors, um, whether they're people we bump into all the time at the grocery store. Sometimes it's actually our enemies are ourselves. We have this tendency to be destructive towards ourselves. Our own worst enemy is ourself. Sometimes it's circumstances. Sometimes it actually is the government can be our enemy. Sometimes it's fill in the blank. We at different stages in our different lives have different enemies in different ways. But we still feel the attack. David in his circumstances is unique. The danger that we can do with scripture sometimes is uh, taking something like this and directly putting our our circumstance in, into the scripture, saying, I am exactly like David. And in some cases that's true and that's right and that's okay. But I think we need to understand the context of why and where David writes Psalm 59. There's, there's a little heading at the beginning of verse 50, or chapter 59. Most of your, our Bibles should have it. And actually, um, one interesting thing is that in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew text, that's actually verse 1. So, so the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 59, has 18 verses. And the, the first verse being, For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy, I don't know what that song is, but that's the tune. Of David, that's who wrote it. A miktam, that's a musical term most people suspect. And here's the key part. When Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. So then we ask the question, what, what was this circumstance? The circumstance drives us back to 1 Samuel chapter 19. And you will all remember, of course, because we're going through the Bible reading, and you all remember everything that you have read. Psalm 19 follows, or Psalm 19. 1 Samuel 19 follows 1 Samuel 18 and 17. And there's David and Goliath. And after David and Goliath comes uh, 1 Samuel 19, where Saul actually sends men to try to kill David. He's already tried to kill David a couple of times. He's thrown the spear and he's tried to pin him to the wall. But... In this case, he's trying to be more sneaky. He sends men to watch David's house. And they want to kill him. They're looking for a sneaky way to either make it look like an accident, to try to sneak in and perhaps kidnap him and kill him. We don't know exactly what's going on. We do know that Saul has sent men to kill David. Saul's actions, and we'll get into a little bit of why he was doing this soon, Saul's actions in trying to kill David is legitimately a true tragedy. Legitimately one of those things where, as we're reading through 1 Samuel, and when we come to uh, David's response in Psalm 59, this should actually be one of those moments where we just stop and shake our heads in disappointment in Saul. Saul, the king of Israel, has the greatest champion the nation has ever known. David has killed Goliath. And Saul wants to kill him. Imagine what it would have been like, and I know it's dangerous to play the what-if game, but what if, what if Saul had, instead of trying to kill David over and over and over again, what if he had actually said, yes, this is my champion. He will lead my armies. He will be the one to lead Israel to victory. I am king. I am in control. But David, he's going to lead the charge. Imagine how neat, cool, how how well that would have worked as Saul and David working together to conquer all these other nations that had before been oppressing Israel. They now have this fantastic duo team to actually take out all of these nations. It's a true tragedy that Saul goes in a different direction. And I don't mean tragedy in the, the Shakespeare sense, although in some sense Macbeth has nothing on Saul, right? Um... But it's a true tragedy what happens. On top of that, Saul is king, yes, but he's also David's father-in-law. And I thought about trying to figure out whether it was smart to put in a father-in-law trying to kill his son-in-law joke. Um, and and we, we can fill those in, you know, in our own time. Um, the reality is that sometimes we don't get along with our in-laws, right? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, Okay. Sometimes we don't, we just don't get along, right? 
and, and that's okay sometimes. Different parenting styles, different family styles, different priorities, different circumstances, different reasons. We just don't get along. This is a whole new level of dysfunction. This is a whole new level. I can't imagine what it would be like, and I get along great with my father-in-law. I can't imagine what it would be like to have your father-in-law seeking to kill you. Not in some jokey TV show kind of way, you know, the shotgun wedding or whatever it is. Saul seriously wanted David dead. So much to the point that we're actually told in 1 Samuel that he allows his daughter Michael to marry David so that she could then possibly be a way for Saul to figure out how to kill David. What do you do when your family betrays you? What do you do when the people who are supposed to have your back and your family are supposed to be the people who are there for you all the time. No matter what, what time of day, where you are, your family is supposed to be the people who care about you. What do you do when they haven't just forgotten about you or ignored you, but they're actually trying to kill you? It's an extreme situation, but that's what's, that's what's driving this psalm forward. And on top of that, we get to the next little bit, verse 3. See how they lie in wait for me. These are the men that, that Saul has sent. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense for sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. David here declares his innocence, not his perfection. Distinction there. We know from Psalm 51 that, that David understands and recognizes that he is not perfect. He is not sinless. But in this case, he has done no wrong. He hasn't done anything against Saul. He, he hasn't... Uh, abused Michael. He hasn't um, tried to take over the throne. He hasn't done anything for which Saul logically or legally has any right to be upset with David. So what's, what's the problem? What's the issue? David's saying, I'm innocent. I haven't done anything. So what, what's Saul's problem here? Well, Saul's jealousy was really the driving force behind his pursuit of David. David had killed Goliath. Great. Yay. Woohoo. And um, that story... That account of David killing Goliath is actually the beginning of Saul's problems. Well, not the beginning. Saul's got issues before that. But that's where we really start to see it manifest in Saul's life. David and Goliath is as much a story about David's triumph and David's victory as much as it's a story about Saul's failure. What was Saul's role as king? to lead the people of Israel, to lead them in battle, to lead them in war, to fight for the God of Israel. That was his role. That was his job. That's what he was there for. And what was he doing? Hiding in a tent. He was as much afraid of Goliath and the, the Philistines as everyone else was. He wasn't doing what God had called him to do as king of Israel. David steps up. David acts as king in that moment. That's where we actually get a picture of what David's going to be like as king, because before he's actually king, he's doing kingly things. He's acting as the king ought to act, and he's showing the nation, this is what you need in a king. You need somebody who's going to stand up, who's going to lead you, who's going to fight for you. After David and Goliath, we get to 1 Samuel 18. In these verses, 7 to 9, People are rejoicing. They're glad. Goliath has been killed. Woohoo! Wonderful. Everybody agrees that is good. Saul agrees that is good. People are celebrating. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me, only thousands. What more could he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Saul's jealous. And I don't, I don't want to take too much time on this. But jealousy really does destroy people. Jealousy will destroy you if you let it get a hold of you. How much time do we waste? And Saul's pursuit of David actually was a waste of his time. He should have been doing kingly things like leading the nation, uh, going against other nations, you know, standing up for what is good and right for Israel. And he spent so much time wasted running after David. And time and time again, he fails. So he just keeps going after him. And then he 
catches up to David, and David spares Saul's life, and Saul goes, okay, you're right, David, I was wrong, I'm going to leave you alone, and then he goes after him again. Time and time again, wasted, all because of his jealousy. Adding on top of the, the tragedy of this whole situation, jealousy is ultimately rooted in unthankfulness. Unthankful for what we already have. That song, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands, Saul's proper response should have been, thank you, Lord, for delivering me a thousand times. I, I know that's, that's figurative, right? Like the, we, we understand that Saul has killed his thousands and David has tens of thousands. It's not a literal thousand and ten thousand. They're meant to understand Saul has, has done all of these great things in battle for Israel. David has done even more. He's done even bigger and better things. He's done greater things. And, and the, the sad thing is, is that Saul failed to realize that God delivered him a thousand times. God was with Saul to deliver him through these things. We don't know what they are. We don't know the, the actual number. He failed to recognize that God was with him and delivered him and gave him power and strength to fight a thousand battles. Yes, David has fought tens of thousands. And, and sometimes maybe the proper response is, thank you, Lord, that wasn't me. Because I, I probably wouldn't have been able to get through that. David can handle that. That's great. Lord, you've blessed me for my thousand. Thank you. It's a tragedy that he fails to see God's hand, God's deliverance, God, God's blessing on his life. And instead he turns to jealousy. Arise to help me. So this is David's response now to these men, to Saul, to them trying to, to capture him, to kill him. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. David is looking for a fortress. We know that from verse 1. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. He's looking for a fortress. and um, You all know what a fortress is, right? Like if I say the word fortress... Everybody's got a picture of something in their mind, whether it's a castle, whether it's a big wall with turrets on the end of it, or you know, whatever it is. We all understand what fortress means. But, but the word here that, that David uses, he's looking for a place of protection. And we all have that idea of a fortress is a place that I go into where nobody can get me. But the word carries a greater meaning. It, 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 it means a, a lofty or, or high place a place too high to scale, an insurmountable height away from the enemy, an inaccessible place, a place that is untouchable, unattainable. It's elevated so high that nobody can even get to it. That's what the, the word carries. It's not just a strong, impenetrable place. It's a place nobody can even touch. We like the idea of the fortress. And I don't. I don't know why. I always think of this. Whenever I think of fortress, I think of Lord of the Rings. Um, and I think in the two towers, when they are in, and now I'm blanking on where it is. Where are they when they're hiding in the mountain? Helm's Deep. Thank you. Should have wrote that down. Um, <laughs> thank you to all the Lord of the Rings fans. I, for some reason, I think of impenetrable fortress. I think of Helm's Deep because it's that giant concrete, brick, stone wall. They, they've got a mountain behind them that nobody can get through, and they've got half of a mountain in front of them, which hopefully nobody can get through, but then as we see, the orcs come in, and they actually can break through the doors. They can blow up the walls. They can get in. A fortress that people can touch is a fortress that people can break through somehow, some way. David is asking for something bigger and better than that. He's asking for a fortress that it isn't even touchable. Their arrows can't reach. They can't even get to with a battering ram. So then we have to ask the question, is David too bold? Is David asking for something that's a little ridiculous or that's asking too much of God? Not in the sense that God couldn't provide it, but that he's expecting too much of God. Or do we sometimes expect too little of God? I think sometimes in our fear, in our doubt, in our lives, we don't ask enough of God because we're afraid of being rejected. God sometimes says yes, sometimes he says no. So if I ask for, you know, I've got option A, B, and C, 
and I really want A, but I'm afraid of getting less than C, so I'll ask for B. I'll ask for something in the middle. God, let me, I'll meet you halfway. I know you can do big things, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask for something that's not quite too ridiculous here. How many of you, I'm not going to ask you if you've prayed this, how many of you have ever heard somebody pray these words, Lord, we pray for a hedge of protection around them? You ever heard that? A hedge of protection. How many of you know the comedian, Christian comedian Tim Hawkins? Okay, a handful. How many of you have ever heard him talk about that? Okay, I love it. It's great. He basically, not being irreverent, but he says, how dumb are we for asking for a hedge of protection? Do you know what a hedge is? It's a bunch of bushes. That's not helpful. It's not like the devil's going to walk up to a bunch of bushes and go, I don't know what to do. He's funny and all the rest. Sometimes we ask for the hedges when we, when we should be asking for the fortress. Sometimes we don't expect God to answer our prayers in ways that are great and mighty. So we ask for just a smaller thing. Our God is big enough to build a hedge around you and he's big enough to build a four-walled turret, massive thing where nobody can even touch. We shouldn't ask too little of God, not expecting for God to always answer in the way that we want. But just because he sometimes answers differently than we anticipated or wanted, doesn't mean he can't do great and mighty things. The key here is where David looks for this untouchable place of security. In verse, uh, where am I here? Verse 5. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel. The, the, the word Lord there, and most of our translations uh, will, will have it in all caps, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. And, and what that's meant to signify is that's the personal name for God. That's um, the, the word that the Jews had, Yahweh. That's the word that they have in this scripture to describe who God is. This is the God who, when Moses said, who am I supposed to tell the Egyptians who, who sent me? Who am I supposed to tell the nation of Israel who sent me? And God says, I am. I am has sent me. I am who I am. Yahweh has sent you. The God who reveals himself to his people. Lord God Almighty. And that, that phrase, God Almighty, there's another phrase that we're familiar with that sometimes we don't always um, understand completely, and maybe it's just me. Lord God Almighty. We've all heard that before. We've sung it before. But that phrase, Almighty, that word Almighty, it carries a military connotation. Other, other people have translated it in different places in different ways. Um, Lord God of hosts. Lord God of heavenly hosts. Lord God of armies. And I think what we're supposed to understand when we read Lord God Almighty, God Almighty, God of hosts, we're supposed to think of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. Do you remember that story? Of course you do, because we read it and you remember everything, right? 2 Kings 6, Elisha, he's been constantly saving the king of Israel. The king of Syria has been trying to capture the king of Israel. And every time he tries to get there, Elisha, the prophet, has been telling the king of Israel, get out of here, the king of Syria is coming. And the king of Syria is mad. And he goes, who keeps ratting us out? Who on my team is ratting me out to the king of Israel? And all of the king of Syria, all of those guys, they go, no lord, or no king, it's, it's this prophet, Elisha. So the king then decides, well, before I can get the king of Israel, I've got to get Elisha, so that he can stop ratting me out on where I'm coming from. So Elisha and his servant are in this house in Dothan. And in the night, the king of Syria has sent his entire army, literally it says his entire army, to surround this one house. Elisha is not getting away. And the servant opens the door and he's terrified because surrounding this house, this small village, is this, the entire army of Syria. And he's petrified, rightly so. We sometimes make fun of biblical people for being afraid. And yes, they should have had faith. But you walk out of your door and, you know, all of the bad guys are right outside the front door. That's scary. It's okay to be scared in those situations. But Elisha's not. Why? 
he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And then, when the Lord opens the eyes of the servant, he looks around and in the hills and on the countryside is an army vastly greater than the army of Syria, an army of chariots of fire, an army sent by God. And Elisha, to paraphrase, tells the servant, look man, you got nothing to worry about. Yes, they've got a big army. Our God's got a bigger one. Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, Israel's covenantal God. Not, not the God of Canaan, who was Baal, not Marduk of Babylon. David is talking to the God of Israel, the God who has revealed himself to his people. And I think it's important to recognize that it doesn't matter how much you plead and beg if you're asking the wrong person, if you go to the wrong individual. There have been a couple of times where Naomi, and she's two months now, she's woken up just screaming bloody murder. Like, just, whoo! Like, the neighbors can hear her. That's how bad it is. She's just screaming. Sometimes she's gassy. Sometimes she's just rolled over onto her face, which is apparently a bad thing for babies. Um, I know that. I'm a good dad. I don't, I don't lay them down like that. Sometimes she's, she's crying because she's hungry. And I can pick her up, screaming as she is, and, and I can rock her as much as I want, and I can try to comfort her and console her as much as I want, but the reality is, is that she doesn't need dad, she needs mom. She needs something that only mom can give her. I can be as loving and caring a parent as, as I could possibly be, and at some point I have to recognize I am inadequate for what my child needs in this moment. How many times do we, do we waste our time going to the wrong place, the wrong individual, the wrong thing, looking for help, looking for security, protection, but all in the wrong place and from the wrong person? David doesn't go anywhere else. And remember, this is the thing that fascinates me, is that David has killed Goliath, Right? He's defied the armies of Philistine. And he's worried about a couple of guys. He's, he's slain his ten thousands. And he's worried about Saul. And, and a couple of prowling dogs. Snarling dogs. What, why is David afraid? He, he should not be afraid. He's big and strong and mighty. And yet he cries out to God. Deliver me. These wicked traitors... These men that have been sent, they return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city, see what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? Saul couldn't just kill David. He couldn't just pin the champion of Israel to the wall because he was popular with the people and married to his daughter. He had to, he had to figure out a sneaky way. So he sends men to lie in wait for an opportunity to murder David. And here we're told about they're lying in wait, and yet they're not inactive. They're not just sitting around doing nothing. They're spewing words from their mouths. Words sharp as swords. And this would seem to indicate that these men are going around the city, spewing words, sharp words, destructive words from their mouths, seeking to discredit David. They're trying to tear David down. Because he, he pleads later in, in, in the chapter... Lord, judge them for the lies and curses of their lips. They're lying about me. We need to pause here for a moment. We can say, yes, this is wrong. Yes, this is, this is awful. Words sharp as swords is not a soft term, right? Words hurt. Words are destructive. Words can cut deep. Reputations can be ruined so quickly and easily especially considering our age of social media and everything else. We should be reminded of James' James's words in his letter. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. These men in these destructive words, purposefully destructive, nasty words, 
they say, who can hear us? It's, it's a term of arrogancy. We're saying all these things. Who can hear us? Who can do anything about it? Nobody. We're going to say what we want, when we want, about who we want, and nobody can do a thing about it. That's what this term means. They're going around the city trying to destroy David. Verse 8 has one of the most unexpected and delightful follow-ups to the arrogancy of destructive people seeking to take down the Lord's people. But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. Laughter is not necessarily what you would expect or want. If you are in deep trouble and somebody laughs, that's not the response you're looking for, is it? But this laugh, the Lord's laugh, in this context, with who he's laughing at, is a laugh of derision, a laugh of scoffing. They say, who can hear us? God says, I do, and I can do something about it. God is almost amused by their efforts, by the efforts of the wicked. And if God is not dismayed by the efforts of sinful, wicked human beings, I don't think his people need to be dismayed either. Yahweh, Lord God Almighty, he is a big God who looks down on little man and laughs. Remember in Genesis, the story of Babel, of course you do because you've all read it and you all remember, Um, the, the phrasing that's used in that account Men are building this tower trying to reach to the heaven. And God says, what are they doing down there? Let us go down there and see what they they are doing. The phrasing isn't just thrown in there. We're meant to understand that humanity thought they were building something big and great, and God on high couldn't even see it from his throne on high. You think you're so great and mighty, and yet... You're so small that God has to actually step off of his throne to get down there to see it. The acts of the wicked, the acts of sinful men are so small in comparison to what God can do. Enemies are seeking to destroy, but God. There's a phrase that I think we should go through and highlight in our Bibles. But God. Enemies seeking to destroy, but God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. The but God phrases of the Bible are one of the most encouraging, exciting phrases that you will ever read. Because they follow hopelessness. They follow destruction. They follow the points in our lives where all hope seems lost, but God steps in. But God is big enough. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. David's conclusion after crying out to God is that God is his resting place, is his protection, is his fortress. Not just that he supplies it or that he builds it and then leaves. God is his protection. He is his security. How many of you have seen uh, Princess Bride? And all the hands go up, right? And if you haven't, shame on you. It's been out for 30 years. So here's a spoiler alert, but it's been out for 30 years, so if you haven't seen it yet, I don't care. Remember, our our hero, Wesley, has been killed, or so we think. He's been killed. He's been in the torture chamber. He's he's dead. And his friends, Inigo Montoya and uh, Andre the Giant. What was it? Fezzik. Big Andre the Giant. Fezzik, they... they need a miracle. They need him to, to come back to life. They need him to complete their quest. So what do they do? They go to Miracle Max. When you need a miracle, you go to a miracle maker. And Miracle Max, this is in fairy tales, okay? Fairy tales, when you need a miracle, you go to a miracle guy, okay? Disclaimer. Where am I going with this? Um, right. So they go to Miracle Max, and they knock on the door, and Miracle Max from the inside says, Go away! No more miracles here! And so they pound on the door again, and he opens up his little slot. He says, go away or I'll call the brute squad. And Fezzik goes, I'm on the brute squad. And Miracle Max looks up and goes, you are the brute squad. Because he's so big, he's so massive that you don't need a squad. All you need is this guy, and you have the squad. I think that's the idea. 
Hopefully that made sense. You're not just on the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. You, in person, are the Brute Squad. I don't need anything else for the Brute Squad. I just need you. We don't need anything else but God himself for our security, for our fortress. God doesn't just supply it. He is our fortress. How has David come to this conclusion? It's interesting. You are my strength. I watch for you. David comes to this conclusion by watching. Not for the enemy, but for God. I watch for you. Where are your eyes looking? Where are your eyes turning to in your moments of trial, tribulation, of hurt, of pain, of destruction? Where do your eyes look? To the storm around you or to Jesus? We all know this song that was written a number of years ago. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You all know that one, right? Look full in his wonderful face and all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why? Why do the things of earth grow strangely dim? Because they don't exist anymore? Because they're not there? No. Both material things and people still exist when we point our eyes towards Jesus. It's not that this song is trying to convey that you look at Jesus and everything just disappears. His glory and grace becomes enough for us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and everything else that used to matter. Yes, it's still happening. The storm is still raging. We think of Peter on the water and we can debate and discuss the why of his failure? Why, when he turned his eyes from Jesus to the storm, why did he start to sink? We could talk about the why, but at the very least, at the bare minimum, what we do know is, is when he had his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on water, and when he looked away, regardless of the reason, the theological reason for that, when he turned his eyes away from Jesus, he started to sink. Watching also involves waiting. And this is the hard part for us, right? I will watch for you. I, I, I will look to Jesus, but I'm still going to try to do things on my own. We think of the phrasing even found in Scripture, waiting for the dawn. Is there anything you can do to hurry up the coming of the dawn? No, and yet it was somebody's job to watch for the dawn, to wait for the first light. You think of the, the man in, in the pirate ship looking for land in the eagle's nest. Is that what it was called? Yeah, okay. Crow's nest. Crow's. Okay. It was a bird's nest of some kind. When they were in that nest, whatever bird it was, and, and they were looking for land, watching for land, was there anything that they could do in that crow's nest to make land show up any quicker? No, they had to wait. They had to wait for something else to happen, for the guys down below to do their thing for the wind to take them in the right direction. Think of waiting for the return of the Lord. This is what we're called to anticipate. We just sang about it. Lord, haste the day. Is there anything that we do to hasten the time that the Lord has determined to come back? We, we don't do anything. Now, what I'm not saying is, is that in these times of waiting, we're inactive. We've been called to do a great many things while we watch and wait. But our actions don't They don't hurry up God. It's not like the more we do, God's going to look down and go, oh, I, I see you've done 50%, I'll do the, the last 50. Waiting is hard. Watching and waiting for God, especially in a situation where David could have been killed. But he says this, halfway through verse 10, God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget in your might, uproot them and bring them down for the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips. Let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. David's chief concern here is not for himself, is not for his own vengeance, but it's for the Lord's namesake. He's cried out for deliverance. For personal safety, yes, but here we see that he's saying, Lord, deliver me so that the nations will know that they can't get away with wickedness, that sin is not okay. 
He prays for God to punish their sins, their pride, their curses, their lies, so the ends of the earth will know that God rules over Jacob. Here, David is asking God to be God and to do what is right. Punish sin, Lord, because that is right. Sin cannot go unpunished. Yes, Lord, deliver me. Lord, save me. Be my fortress. Protect me. But Lord, your name doesn't deserve to be slandered like this. Be who you say you are and judge sin. God goes before David to fight for him. This is actually this is interesting because in the context of uh, 1 Samuel 17, 18, and 19, David and Goliath, what was David doing in 1 Samuel 17? He was going and fighting for God. Who will stand up against these wicked men? Who will stand and fight for the nation of Israel? Who will stand and defend the honor of our God? Only David would stand up and do that. Here we have a reversal of that. God goes before David and he will fight for him. God will go and will fight the battle. He's not just the God with the angelic army from 2 Kings 6. He's the God who leads the angelic army. He's the God who goes before. And he fights for his people. God rules, not Saul. God rules, not David. God rules over Jacob and the nations. He rules over Moab and Babylon and Assyria and the Philistines. He rules over Canada. He rules over the U.S. and Russia. God is on his throne right now, ruling and reigning on high. The problem is, not the problem, that's not the right way to phrase it. The hard thing is, is that it doesn't always feel that way. Because he follows that. God goes before me. He will fight for me. With verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. It doesn't always feel like God is ruling and reigning because there's still people here who are attacking us, who are coming after our life. The dogs are still prowling. The enemies still attack. And they let you know it. I'm sure you can think of people in your own life who let you know that they're coming after you, who are howling at you. People will let you know when they're out to get you. They will howl. There's still deep trouble that is in my life, Lord. I know you go before. I know you go fight. But, th- but there's still these dogs here. They're still prowling and snarling. It's not a pretty picture, by the way. And we're not meant to understand that my dog snarls sometimes. We love our dog. But he'll snarl at somebody else who gets a little bit too close to Amelia and Naomi. It's actually pretty adorable. Um, in how he, he's playful and loving. But if you come at my people the wrong way. He, he lets you know it that he's not pleased. He'll snarl at you. These dogs, dogs weren't pets. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were disgusting. And they were snarling at you because they were searching for any little bit of scrap of food and they were going to kill for it. The metaphor of the snarling dog, the prowling dog, it shifted a little bit. Before, back in verse 7, They were spewing words. Things were coming out of their mouth. Now in this verse, they're seeking to find something to put into their mouths. They are hungry because they haven't found food to devour. David's enemies are dangerous for both what comes out of their mouth and what they are trying to put into their mouth. Enemies are dangerous. But have you noticed why they howl? Yes, they howl because they're coming for David. Yes, they howl because they're They're seeking for somebody to consume, but they howl. Well, where's my verse here? They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. Meaning, David hasn't been consumed yet. If he had been consumed, they would have been fed. They they would have no need to howl. They howl because David is not destroyed yet. The first prowling dog verses were followed by, but God. The dogs do this. The evil, wicked men, they spew things from their mouth. They are seeking to do this, but God laughs. And now that God has gone before David, God is going before and fighting his battle, there's still dogs. There's still people surrounding David seeking to destroy him. David says this, though, but I, 
First it was but God. God does his thing. And then I respond. But I will sing of your strength. A song has been brought up in David's heart. Maybe not the response we were anticipating. He's, he's almost, in a matter of 16 verses, he seems like he's got a couple of personalities going on. Lord, woe is me, deliver me, but I'm going to sing. What, how does that transition happen? How does it go from deep discouragement and in need of help to changing his tune to the point where he's actually singing? I don't know what song he was singing, but I like to anticipate and think that it was, it is well with my soul. Just because I like that song. In the morning, I will sing of your love. David is confident the Lord will see him through the night. Remember the dogs that came in the verse before, they come in the evening. They come under the cover of night. They come under the cover of darkness. And they seek to do their dirty work in the dark. David is confident that he will get through that night and see the morning. I will sing of your praises in the morning. For you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You've probably noticed, and if you read through it a couple of times, you'll notice the repetition in this song. Both of the prowling dogs, but of God being the fortress. Of God being David's fortress. Not just this obscure uh, fortress that's almost unattainable for him to get to, but a fortress that God supplies in himself. David is on the run fleeing for his life because his father-in-law is seeking to kill him. But he sings praises to God for what he has done and what he will do. David will not be consumed. And then verse 17. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. A pastor friend I remember him preaching. I think it was in chapel at TBS. He said one of the most profoundly theological phrases that I could ever hold on to. It's also the most easiest to understand. Your best stinks. The fact that you think it's good proves that it's even stinkier. Our strength, our best actions... Our best motivations, they fall so short. Reliance on God and his strength is what gives David the courage to actually gloat over his enemies. You may be coming at me, but my God is bigger. My God, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what it looks like. But my hands are not in the hands of my enemies. They're in the hands of my God. Going back to the watching and waiting. In verse 9, David was watching and waiting for the Lord. I watch for you. I wait for you. And after that, after he watches, after he waits, he praises. I think what we're supposed to understand is, is that if you watch and wait for God, it's never in vain. You will always have reason to praise the Lord if you watch and wait for him. Deliverance hasn't even come yet, right? I mean, in the span of this psalm, he's still being oppressed, and yet he praises. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. This starts as a psalm of lament, a psalm of discouragement but ends in a psalm of praise, a song of praise and adoration. What changed? His circumstances are the same. Men are still trying to kill him. Saul is still after his life. David still has to run. But he knows his life is in God's hands. So I ask you, what kind of deliverance do you seek this morning? What kind of refuge, what kind of fortress are you looking for this morning? This psalm asks for God to punish sin, which is a, a bold and righteous request. And we can build off of what Steve has talked about a number of times over the past couple of weeks. We should be furious that sin happens in the world. That is a reflection of our closeness to God. But it's also a dangerous request because I think if we evaluate our own lives, we'll recognize, Lord, I don't want you to punish my sin. 
I don't want you to punish me. Punish everybody else's sin, but, but be merciful to me. In Jesus Christ, we're shown both mercy and grace. And in Jesus, all of our sin has been punished. We can ask God, God, punish my sin justly, rightly, correctly. Be who you are and judge sin in this whole world. And we can say that with confidence if we are in Christ because our sin has been punished on the cross. Our sin has been paid for. It's been dealt with. We sometimes read these and we go, man, that that seems harsh and a little bit dangerous. Why would David ask for that? He knows he's not perfect. We know we're not perfect. But don't run from God with your sin. Run to him. Because in, in Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, we've been given forgiveness. We're given righteousness. We're given grace. Our ultimate redemption, which in this case, David is looking for physical fortresses. A physical place for him to hide. But our salvation, ultimately, deeply, truly, spiritual, true salvation is found in Jesus and in him alone. Psalm 59, as great and wonderful as it is, and as great a deliverance as David was anticipating, is just a shadow, just a taste of what we have in Jesus. Psalm 59 is made richer, is made sweeter by Ephesians 1. I'm tempted to read the whole thing, but I won't for the sake of time. Because the worst possible way to conclude a sermon is to start preaching another one. So I won't do that to you. But let me read these, these verses. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And I'll stop there. In him, in Christ, in Jesus. You read Ephesians 1, you'll see many, many times the phrase in him. All of the blessings we get in him. The redemption that we have in him. The salvation. The fortress that we get. Spiritual reconciliation with God. True redemption in Jesus Christ. That's a good reason to praise Jesus, isn't it? To praise the Father for the deliverance, the redemption that we have in his Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up now to lead us in our final song.